Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre. With me is Z. In this episode, we have uh, quite a few pre-auth RCEs, a new CFI implementation, or kind of new, uh, JSON interoperability-based smuggling. Uh, but before that, we have some other news and uh, other various exploits. So let's jump into news first, as always. So Microsoft open-sourced uh, their CodeQL queries they use for finding indicators of compromise and code patterns associated with the SolarWinds Orion attack. Um, so for those who somehow missed it, um, back in December, there was a big uh, SolarWinds Orion attack that compromised various uh, big businesses like Microsoft, um, as well as government organizations as well. Um, and, and this is kind of a quick post, but it they're basically, they have this interesting application of CodeQL that I don't think we've really seen or at least talked about before. Uh, we've talked about using CodeQL for Vuln research, but not really for indicators of compromise or or that type of work. Um, so basically, they're, they're trying to use this to automate um, the IOC hunting, basically. Um, and they had two tactics to do that. Um, they searched for syntax at the code level, so... I think they were basically trying to check for like variable names and literals and and those kinds of things that could figure like kind of fingerprint um, the attack. And then they also searched for semantic patterns for the techniques present. Um, and the reasoning behind having those two tactics was was that if an attacker changed the syntax, uh, the technique search could still catch it, and vice versa. If the technique changed, uh, the syntax might be able to catch it still. Um, now they note that it's possible they could have changed both as well. Um, but that's why they say CodeQL, the CodeQL stuff in this article was just one cog in the machine kind of uh, for their investigation. They had other methods at their disposal as well, other than just the CodeQL stuff. Um, so yeah, not a ton to talk about technically speaking, but I think this is a really cool application of CodeQL. Yeah, and that's kind of why I wanted to call it out is just fact that, I mean, like you mentioned, we've talked about CodeQL in the context of vulnerability research. Um, a little bit in the context of like maybe some RE, well, not so much RE, but being able to um, work through like a bunch of macros or something, just get them resolved fairly quickly and just look it up pretty much, like using it for information about the code. Not so much in this way. So I thought it was a really cool use case, um, not something that I had actually considered or thought about before. And yeah, the actual queries here are not that interesting they do have obviously they've open sourced the queries i've pulled up uh linked to the commit with the queries you can kind of see how they've looked for certain syntax or certain flows to exist between uh some of the function names that they consider potentially dangerous it's it's nothing too unexpected it's just the fact that it's a unique use case i think so i want to really call that out um and I, I mean i hope to see more of this when it comes to the indicators of compromise? Um, I will quickly state, uh, sorry for those in chat, we did forget to update the title somehow of the Twitch stream before we went live. This is our podcast, this isn't a PS4-related yeah, stream. the second time I've done that. Yeah, it's all Z's fault. <laughs> uh, yeah, blame me. Yeah. Um, no, it's just one of those things that's, that's easy to miss, so apologies for that. This is the podcast, though. Uh, we we're, weren't we're just doing to it you. to get more people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, th this was this was cool. Um, Microsoft says they will be doing more blog posts about how they use CodeQL in the future. Um, so that'll be worth looking forward to, I think. Um, but yeah, like just just an interesting way of using CodeQL. Uh, the next news topic we have is around Black Hat USA. Uh, Black Hat USA 2020, the talks for that uh, ended up coming out uh, a couple days ago. So yeah, all the talk uh, presentations are there because it was streamed live because the world is on fire. Um, the, the presentations are quite different from what they usually are. They're, they're more like at home presentation style, um, as was the case with CCC, for example. Um, I haven't seen a ton of the talks. Um, some of the talks I did see was um, the exploit chain to remotely root Android devices, exploiting kernel races through taming threat interleaving, and directed fuzzing and use after free, which I think uh, you saw two of those two, I think, see, right? Yes. Um, I definitely saw the uh, uh, the race condition one. Uh, what was the other one you mentioned that you think I might have seen? Uh, the directed fuzzing, I think. Yes. Yeah, I did. I did go through both those. Wasn't terribly impressed by them. Oh no, what did you think? So I thought the talks were kind of interesting. Um, one thing that was what kind of sucked though was basically all the talks I listened to, the presenters were kind of struggling to um, put their thoughts into English. And this is one thing I got into a bit of a discussion with some people in the RE server about, and I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on it. I wish conferences would allow presenters to use, especially with like the virtual conference where there's not a live audience, it would be nice if they allow them to present in their native language and then they just did like a dub or something afterwards because it was, I feel like you lose a lot of value when I couldn't understand, like one of the talks, I think it was the remotely rooting Android devices, I couldn't understand anything they were saying. I basically just had to skip through the slides of the video to try to figure out what was going on. Um, and it's just, I, I feel like there's a lot of value lost there. There's not much sense in listening or watching to a talk, watching a talk when you can't understand what's being said. Um, I wish like, it seems like the conferences are being a little bit lazy and cheap and not wanting to do any dubbing or at least subtitles. That would be another option too, is just doing subtitles so that it's a little bit more understandable, but I don't know, like. That is one problem I found with multiple of the talks that I listened to. It was I, like, I know you, one thing you say uh, is you like to listen to talks on like two times speed. There was no chance in hell I could have listened to any of these talks on anything above uh, one time speed because at one time speed alone, it was, it was hard enough to, to hear what was being said. I, mean, um, but I don't you know have, if you, you have the same problem when you like go to a conference live though. I mean, some, some people just are not native English speakers. Um, I don't know. I mean, I get where you're coming from. And I think as a presenter, since they did pre-record these, they would have had the opportunity to do that if they wanted to do that. Uh, I think come off as a little bit rude if they were to just do that to somebody and be like, yeah, we didn't like the way you were talking. So we dubbed you. Um, I guess you are saying if they go in their native language, I mean, there definitely yeah. are benefits to, to that. And I want to say, um, Oh, what is it? Um, there's a conference in Montreal every year. Are you thinking of Recon? Uh, no. No, oh, okay. it's... um. Yeah, I, I can't remember exactly what it is, but um, 
I know they do French and English presentations and they'll dub them. And I think CCC will actually dub their the German talks. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like that does happen. I think it's a fair point. I don't know. I It's not something I'm really too keen to complain about. I just appreciate the fact they're giving the presentation in the first place. Yeah, it's just a step that I think would be uh, like a, a good step forward for the conferences. But well, yeah, especially since something... they are remote now, like since a lot of them are remote. Yeah, I can definitely see see a benefit of basically taking advantage of the fact they are remote. They have more time to do this, you know, get the recordings done a little bit ahead of time, take them and then offer that dubbing as just an option for everybody uh to be able to take advantage of like i think that would be a great way to do it yeah exactly taking advantage of that ability to to add more production value um that said i mean obviously none of the conferences have to do this but i just feel like if the conference did do that i like i know personally i would really appreciate it and i think some others would too um, because it was a common complaint i saw some other com people complaining about the exact same thing so um but overall, I think some of the talks I saw were cool, though they weren't as cool as I would was like hoping they would be by the title. Um, but Z, I, I know there were some talks that you saw that I haven't seen yet that uh, you found interesting. I think one of them was the iOS talk. Uh, yeah, so the iOS talk I found interesting. Um, that one was uh, from Brandon Azad, uh, just talking about bypasses on kernel pack. So... I guess he had done a presentation about a year ago also about kernel pack, some fundamental breaks in it, took a look at it again one year later, what has iOS kind of done to improve the state and what's still broken a lot. Talking, you know, basically about getting around kernel pack and some of the bugs that they've had with it. A lot of it came down to just its inability to kind of deal with interrupts properly. Uh, but it was a really good talk, really clear, especially somebody that hasn't done a lot of the iOS stuff. I, I understood a lot of the content out of that, and I found it was just a really cool talk. Um, on that same note, there was a talk about the AMD platform security processor and emulating it, which I just found interesting from the aspect of how they went about creating an emulator for the PSP, uh, platform security processor, not the Sony. Um, so I found that to be an interesting talk. Uh, when TLS hacks you... Uh, where it was some SRF techniques abusing kind of TLS functionality. I want to say that... I'm not sure if we covered that on the podcast or if it was during the summer. I know I saw the slides before I saw the presentation. So it was just nice to see the presentation with that. Um, another talk that I found interesting was the HTTP request smuggling in 2020. Nothing groundbreaking there, but obviously there has been a lot of movement and we've talked a lot about like the desync attacks. So this was kind of an overview of a lot of the recent movement there uh, on that sort of attack. So I found it fairly interesting. I don't entirely agree with where he went in terms of mitigating it and introducing a request smuggling firewall sort of thing uh, as a separate thing from the actual WAF. But, you know, that's debatable and, you know, could probably have a discussion just around how to mitigate those sorts of attacks. And lastly, uh, from the ones I actually found interest, was building a vulnerability disclosure program that works for election vendors and hackers. 
Um, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know I'm a proponent of kind of doing research into some electronic voting and specifically verifiable and fully verifiable voting. Um, and right now there is a ton of insanity around electronic voting security and their disclosure programs, which we've also talked about. You know, some attempts to kind of fix that or approach fixing that, uh, which is kind of the first step to actually getting something that could be maybe possibly considered secure. I think a lot of them are on the wrong track without going the verifiable route, but I still found it interesting kind of what's going on. I mean, it's last year and a half or so is the organization that did that presentation kind of their progress in the last year and a half. But yeah, I, I just found it interesting. At least nice to know that something is being done. It's not just being left as, you know, a wild west. Yeah, so I definitely want to check out that iOS talk. I'll probably check that out tonight. Um, there is one thing I just remembered, though. Um, there is another uh, conference or symposium. I think the NDSS talks went up yesterday, too, right? Yes, they did. I was thinking about linking them, but... Um, oh, no, when it comes to the academic conferences, they're interesting. I prefer kind of looking at the papers most of the time rather than the presentations presentations they're usually kept to 10 to 15 minutes at an academic conference you just get like a very high level overview out of them but yes ndss videos are all up now also yeah so for the black hat talks they are organized in a nice playlist which will be in the description and it's also in chat uh, when we switch to the topic um we will i will quickly plop the link in chat though also for the uh ndss symposium for an for anybody that might find that interesting as well. Um, and when we'll have that in the link of the YouTube description as well. I just wanted to quickly plug that since we're talking about conferences. Um, that said, I don't have too much more to say on Black Hat, so uh, we can move into our exploits section. So first up, we have a HackerOne report, uh, which was submitted to CS Money, which is a CSGO trading platform. Um, it's kind of funny because I'm I'm familiar with this site and I find it really interesting that they have a bug bounty program. Uh, usually these types of like CSGO gambling sites don't. Um, so that kind of caught me off guard. Um, but anyway, they had a report of a cookie poisoning attack that was submitted at the end of last year and was disclosed last week. Um, it's through the support agent functionality and how avatars are stored inside of the cookies which normally should point to Steam avatars, and they do try to verify that it does, but the verification check is pretty flimsy. Uh, they basically, they try to check if the avatar cookie contains the Steam CDN link instead of checking that the host actually is the Steam CDN. So an attacker can basically control the host and have the string that it checks for and a parameter or something and point it somewhere else and pass that check. Um, and, and the problem comes in when the victim reads a message from the attacker and that image gets loaded. Uh, the victim unknowingly sends requests to the attacker's server. So that can be used for something like IP logging um, or like performing a CSERF. Logging them out of the logout endpoint is something they uh, they point to there. Yeah, which is a really classic technique on like, you know, old forms used to change your avatar to point to some URL that was the logout page and mess with people that way. I just thought it was kind of fun to see that sort of attack still happening here. I mean, it's not that damaging, but it can be quite annoying, especially in this case, you're kind of dealing with um, attacking the support staff. Um. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's not the most damaging attack, but I thought it was still fun just because of that. And again, it's just one of those really weak 
URL checks. Like, at the very least, check that starts with, you know, the HTTPS Steam CDN, not that it just contains it. Like, contains just, like, it doesn't even make sense conceptually. It's a really weird check, I agree. So, in total, they got paid $700 for the issue, uh, $200, then an additional $300 when they increased severity, um, and then they also got a $200 bonus. I'm not sure if that was for testing or, or something. Um, but yeah, like not, not a bad bounty at all, and like I said, I'm really surprised that CS Money not only has a bounty program, but they also pay out for bounties. Um, that's, that's pretty crazy, and uh, that, somewhat commendable, because that's not what I'd expect from like a CSGO gambling site. Um, but yeah, pretty pretty quick and, and fun issue. Um, up next, we have an unauthorized unauthorized RCE in VMware vCenter. Kind of spaced out there for a sec. Um, so this one, so there's there was actually two vulnerabilities that were found in the vSphere client, uh, which is used more in like corporate environments. Um, this one focuses on just one of them, I believe, which is an unauthorized file upload leading to RCE. Um, so the blog post kicks off with one of the things we really like to see in write-ups, which is the discovery section, where they talk about some of the methodology and thought process behind discovering the issues. Um, in this case, they basically went top-down. Uh, they discovered a plugin running that didn't require authentication, being the uh, VROPS plugin UI REST services endpoint, and then they dug into functions that were exposed on that endpoint. Which um, I find odd that it exposes like the whole API just without auth. Yeah, it's strange. Uh, you would think that would be like more fine-grained in the permission structure. Yeah, there'd um, be well something around the REST services. I yeah. guess uh, out of chat and more is IT, so this also applies for vSphere, yeah. Yeah, so the function they looked at here was the upload OBA file function, uh, which is used for uploading the open virtualization appliance files for virtual machines, um, and that's uploaded as a tar file. Uh, which had an issue where the entries inside of the tar file weren't validated or checked against path traversal, which is extremely common. We've we've covered multiple issues along the same vein on the podcast uh, just in the last couple months alone, I think. Um, I mean, so we have one that kind of deals with that sort of issue later on in the episode too. So yeah, fairly common. If you've got tar if you've got any sort of like zip files so, or any archive files, so tars or zip or whatever, and they get extracted. I'd want to say like six, seven times out of 10 places don't seem to check this. Obviously, the more security, security sensitive, or at least those that have a more mature security process probably are. But it is so often missed. Yeah. So what that issue allows you to do is you can write to any file on the system. Um, what I thought was neat here, too, was they demonstrated how this could be exploited on both Windows and Linux boxes. On Windows, they use it to upload a JSP web shell, and on Linux, they implant a public SSH key uh, into the box so that they can SSH in. Yeah, and it um, seems like for Linux, the reason why they had to go with just adding a SSH key rather than uploading a shell is because they couldn't find somewhere that was writable and would be executable by the server. Uh, so on Linux, they kind of had to take that alternate route. Uh, which I did find a little bit interesting. That was locked down in that sense on Linux, but not on Windows that they hadn't uh, tried to lock down some of that. Yeah, it's one of those um, interesting areas of discrepancy where when you have a service that can run on multiple platforms, uh, the security is usually noticeably weaker on one platform for one reason or another. I guess probably 
because it's not used as much, it's not tested as thoroughly. So yeah, just just one of those areas to look out for. Um, but yeah, like this is the first of many uh, unauthorized RCEs, and once again, it is that super common issue. Um, for our next topic, we have a ZDI post, which covers uh, another unauthenticated RCE, continuing on that chain, uh, which affects the uh, ISC bind server. It's a heap overflow in the simple and protected uh, GSS API negotiation mechanism. Um, and it's in the dir get OID function. Uh, they don't really go too much into uh, exactly what that function does. And I'm not familiar with ISC bind uh, to be able to offer additional explanation on that. I don't know if you um, well, were able to pull anything on that, Z. I assume from the name of it, it's getting the OID out of the dir file, of the <laughs> dir certificate. Um, okay. Like that, that seems to be a fairly clear name if that's what it's doing. Otherwise, though, I couldn't tell you. That said, the vulnerability here, I think, I think it's kind of fun just because of the fact. Uh, so you have the issue where they create this components, or well, they've got the components field there. That's going to be an array. You can see at this number one here does the malloc, the length, and the size of uh, each component. So creates an array of the components. Uh, make sure it doesn't come back null. So it does those checks, and then it assigns a value into the first two of them. And then it decrements len just by one. And then later on, you'll see here, it does the uh, do while loop while len is greater than zero. Uh, so that basically ends up being an off by one because they should have decremented len by two because they filled in two elements. They're basically tracking how many, how many elements are left in the components array and they have an off by one in there. I thought it's just a really simple vulnerability that looks kind of clear when you re recognize, but really easy to overlook. Um, and this was some that was actually patched in 2006 in uh, the Apache module, uh, mod auth curb, which is where this vulnerability was initially found. ISC bind shared that same code and never ended up patching in the last 15 years until, you know, now. Yeah, it's another example of how those code, those shared code bases can be an issue if you're not paying attention to um, any bugs or advisories that come out of that. Um, what I th thought was cool about the CDI post is it not only points out that exploitation is possible, but they also put forward some exploitation strategies uh, for getting an arbitrary write as well as leaking an address. Uh, they basically they get an arbitrary write by enlarging the next chunk size and then corrupting a chunk's free list so you can allocate like an arbitrary pointer uh, from a controlled free list. Yeah, which like, is that a house of attack? Is there no? Is it's that a tcash under... attack. Um, okay, I didn't know if there was a uh, it, like a name. It's literally like a it poison tcash, I guess. Poison tcash free la free list. Sorry, I guess. Um, there's no house of name for it. It's not a house of attack. Usually, a lot of the tcash stuff ends up just being like tcash attack or whatever, some attribute of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, fair enough. That said, it doesn't look like their their leak. Sorry, their leak works, but it seems like the program crashes too soon to actually be exploitable. Um, they yeah. weren't able to find a way to get, which I appreciate them kind of showing their thoughts on it. Yeah, I think we got more insights in this post than we do sometimes with some of the other CDI posts we've covered. Um, the leak is kind of interesting. It's another attack on Tcash. Uh, they basically pull off a dupe attack so that two calls to malloc in uh, this code neg token arg function return the same address. Um, basically, the exact same premise as a double free. Um, and that second allocated buffer gets sent to the client. So if you can get them to 
to overlap with that um, with that duplication, you can get a heat pointer leaked. Um, so that leak actually does go through. You do get the leaked heat pointer on uh, the other end. Um, the problem is because you're limited on the length of the buffer that gets allocated for that second buffer, um, I think they only allow you to use like 96 bytes. The smaller the size you're dealing with in heap, the more noise that's going to happen inside those caches. And because of all that interference, that's why the process dies very quickly after the leak occurs. So the leak does occur, but it's destructive, essentially. Um, so obviously, because of that, this wasn't taken to a full exploit. They note that it could be, but it wasn't here. You might have to use a, a different leak method or something, because I'm not sure how you could stabilize the one they're attempting to use, as cool as it is. Um, just when you're dealing with caches that are that small, stability is, is really difficult to achieve. Um, but yeah, as the title suggests, and as Z said earlier, this bug has existed for 15 years. Um, in 9.11, they fixed it by patching out the bug, and in 9.16, they just removed support for this mechanism entirely. Um, I guess it's not really used anymore or something. Um, I didn't look too much into that, but yeah, overall, I think uh, these were interesting issues, and I just loved how they went through the exploit strategies, because... That's one thing I've said before that's kind of missing from the CDI posts, especially some of the more recent ones. Um, the more recent ones, they just go into the bug, and they do a bit of background, but they just kind of stop there. They don't really go into, okay, how can this actually be taken advantage of? I mean, and, it uh, seems to depend on who the author is or where they get it from. Because we've seen them do this before, where they've even covered an exploit that's like, and this wasn't exploitable. Uh, so... I mean, we've seen them go into more detail. I mean, it's different authors, so whatever with that. Yeah, it's just a nice change of pace, I guess, from the last couple ones we've been covering. So um, that was cool. So up next, we have uh, arbitrary file write in Sublime Text. And uh, Z, you kind of hinted at this earlier. Um, so yeah, Sublime Text had some interesting issues. Uh, I'll let you uh, jump into this one, Z, since you hinted at it earlier. Yes, there were a few issues with... So it's with packagecontrol.io, technically, which happens to be a popular package manager for Sublime Text. Um, and it were, it's just a few kind of directory traversal or directory escape type attacks. They have a number of them here. My favorite one, though, is they do generally what I end up recommending people do. When you're trying to make sure you're not getting an escape, just go ahead and check if the, like, go render out the full destination, just make sure uh, the actual location that you're getting after you've uh, parsed everything or after you've uh, resolved everything down is still inside of whatever directory you actually want it to be in. Don't bother trying to detect it or do that. And they do actually try to detect um, in several places. Uh, they do try and detect the presence of any sort sort of path traversal characters. I guess one of them that I highlighted isn't actually checked, so just ignore that if you're actually watching. But what's fun about this one is they do all these checks. And the problem is that you control the name, which and they don't actually check it when they're creating this initial package directory. They just join the name, which you completely control as an attacker with the temporary directory. So you can provide any, any sort of escape you want there. So it really doesn't matter that they check if you're inside of this directory because you control whatever directory it's going to be. Uh, meaning that when it goes to extract your archive, 
um, it'll extract all the files into what it thinks is a safe directory, but it, it'll extract them into any directory that you control. Uh, some of the other things they have, like it checks for, um, or it will replace your backslashes with a forward slash. And it will check for paths that actually start with the forward slash, but not with the backslash. Uh, so that basically lets you get an absolute path, which when an absolute path gets passed into the uh, join function, it will just treat that as the root directory. Even if it's like you're joining a relative path and then an absolute path, it'll treat that absolute path as like the, the directory it should use. So you're able to kind of get around it that way because you're not really joining it anymore. You're just replacing it. Um, and they detail a few others. But I... I think it was that first one, the fact that you control the name. Uh, they also deal with the fact that you're trying to get a write based on the, off of the name with that sublime package file itself. Basically just broken all around, broken in several different ways, but they do make an attempt here. And I, it's just the fact like that the first one, the big one here is just you control the name. So you control the path that it's going to look at in the first place. So it doesn't matter what else they do. You've broken it at the very start. Yeah, it, when I picture this type of issue in my head, I, I envision like a castle with these really strong walls and then in like one spot there's just a big gap in the wall. That's kind of how like this is working. They they tried to secure it and it's just one oversight and uh and you get screwed there. So, yeah, I mean, uh that seems kind of fun. Um and we love covering these like Project Zero, uh, like Chromium type bug reports because you do get like the the raw technical details. So um, there are some other details that we're kind of you know not going fully in depth into uh, that you can check out in the in the report itself. But um, yeah, I mean, this is the this these types of issues are just um, they can show how the oversights can can bite you in the end. Yeah, I mean, uh, so, like I said, this this one does have this the actual check being done correctly. It's something I've hit on quite a few times. Is just resolve the path and make sure it starts in the or make sure it's going into the right place. That's all you have to do. In this case, it's just the fact they also calculate the right place incorrectly, which creates a security issue, which just bypasses basically everything else they try and do. Yeah, in the end, it didn't even matter. <laughs> all right, so. Um, continuing our pre-auth RCEs, we have yet another uh, pre-auth RCE uh, in Palo Alto's Global Protect VPN. Uh, so this is uh, so we actually have the Hacker One report up. They also did an article, uh, which is the first of three articles. So apparently there is more stuff that's going to come out from Orange. Um, I think it's all around the the Palo Alto stuff, but I'm not 100% certain on that. So um, he did a presentation at DEF CON last year which I believe covered more of them. Uh, so the thing is, this was reported in 2019. We're covering it now because um, it was disclosed here on February 23rd uh, by Uber. Apparently, he did his write-up, though, about this back in 2019. I don't believe we covered it back then. Maybe, or I guess it would been during our summer break, so we wouldn't have covered it then, but it's a format string vulnerability, and uh, the slash SSL manager with no authentication required. So no auth and format string vulnerability. Who sees format string vulnerabilities anymore? 
I was going to say, I found that fascinating. I don't think I've seen a real-world format string attack in, like, forever. Like, I don't think we've covered one on the podcast. Outside of maybe, maybe like, a game. There might have been one from Crystal Gamer that was around a format string, but definitely not in, like, production software, I don't think. Um, anything that's, you know, newer than 2005 or something. Um I will quickly pull out a chat. Why is there only quality 1080? Uh, as affiliates, we are kind of limited on the transcoding. So, um, yeah, that, that's why the, the quality options are a little bit limited. And, yeah, format string volume, what? Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, it's in the SSL gateway manager for handling SSL handshakes, which is reverse proxy through Nginx to that uh, path that Z mentioned. Um, when they extract the parameters, it searches for an SSEP profile name, and it passes that directly as a format string to SNPrintf. Um, they confirmed the bug by using the percent %n specifier to induce a crash, though they did devise a different verification method um, because they note that crashing isn't their ideal verification vector. Um, and I thought this was kind of interesting. Basically, they do a timing side channel on a request, um, and they use the percent %c specifier to verify that it's being evaluated. So they'll put like a large number in, in the percent %c so specifier and then change it, and then if the execution time or the request time um, changes in accordance to that, then they know that the, the issue is, is present. Um, they did take it further and did a POC to pop a shell. Um, it's the classic way of taking advantage of format string. They basically smashed a function pointer in the global offset table. Uh, they smashed their len and made a point to the system entry in the link uh, procedure linkage table. So yeah, not too interesting when it comes to taking advantage of the issue, just mainly that the issue is even there at all uh, in that form. Um, when they reported the issue to Palo Alto, they noted that they found this issue internally, uh, Palo Alto that is, so they wouldn't issue a CVE apparently for it. Um, but there was still no advisory put out, it would seem. So in the blog post, I think they called it like a silent fix one day, which is uh, kind of an interesting term. Um, they went looking for any targets that could be using Global Protect um, and using like those older versions without the patch. And they found one, which is where this report comes into play, which is Uber. Um, Uber hosted it on an AWS instance. They didn't have it on their core infrastructure, so its impact was uh, limited there. Um, but they were still grateful for the bounty submission, and, and they paid out uh, $2,000 to to Orange for the finding. But yeah, overall, just crazy to see a format string attack in, in 2021. Uh, well, I guess 2019 technically was when it was reported. Yeah, um, but still, it's that's not something we see too often. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it goes to show why advisories are important. Uh, maybe if Uber, maybe Uber wouldn't have been vulnerable to this if they knew this type of issue existed. Uh, and had been discovered by Palo Alto and fixed in newer versions. It seems strange to me that something like this wouldn't receive like some sort of advisory, especially given like Palo Alto's, you know, stance and, and where they are in the in the space. So, yeah, I mean, a bit a bit a bit strange all around with the fact that the issue exists and there was no advisory issued. But, um, well, I mean, yeah, I could understand why they'd maybe want to downplay such an issue. Or hide it. Yeah, that that's a that's a fair point. Uh, but yeah, with that said, we'll move on to our second CodeQL based topic, uh, which is a post from GitHub on how they use CodeQL to exploit a vulnerability and find variants. Uh, so the initial our bug they discovered. Our second CodeQL. 
Um, well, yeah, because we talked about CodeQL, kind of how uh, it was used with the Microsoft for oh, the SolarGate stuff. I was thinking exploits, yeah. Yeah. So um, the initial bug that they discovered was a logic issue with the order of how the big number context object is initialized. So this is an issue in OpenSSL. Um, and basically, OpenSSL has this special memory allocator for big num called BN context or, or big num context. And just like any other allocator, failing to use it correctly will lead to memory corruption. Um, and that's the root of this bug. Um, before using the allocator, you're supposed to call this bnctx start uh, function to create a slab of memory that gets broken into smaller chunks. And then at the end, you call bncontextn to free that whole slab. Um, what happens with this bug is in this ecliptic curve function, they have this error go to routine uh, to bail out that'll free the slab, but it can actually be uh, jumped to before the slab is even allocated in the first place. Um, so they, they found the commit that introduced this type of bug. Um, it's in the EC field inverse mod ord uh, function for ecliptic curve crypto. Um, now where CodeQL comes into play is they wanted to find out how to reach that function. Um, because when you're reaching that deep into the control flow, it can get really challenging to follow it all the way through. Um, and the way they wrote the queries, they were able to not only get the locations of the mismatch start and end cases, but also exact paths uh, with how that's reached. So I think all in all, uh, with the query, they managed to get, I think, around 36, uh, sounds about right, um, results. And then four of those ended up being valid, and two of those were exploitable, I think, uh, were the numbers they gave. Um, but they, they they talk about how they managed to get a crash uh, when accessing unmapped memory. Um, they, they go through the process of developing a POC to exploit the issue. Um, they think it could be used for code execution, but they don't confirm that. They kind of stop at the crash and, and, and call it a day there. Um, but yeah, I think what's more interesting here isn't as much the bug itself as much as the use of CodeQL um, for I mean, the getting bug that is kind. The bug is kind of interesting in that you're dealing with kind of a a bit of a unique situation. So the case where it's called in, or at least the case where they found the vulnerability that they talk about here, is that the uh, the order of the elliptic field has to be even. It only basically it only gets initialized when it's odd, which is generally the case for most of them. But they would just iterate it over them to find at least one of the predefined fields that had an even order, and that's what they were able to use by creating a certificate that used that field. Uh, they were able to cause the crash. This is one of the few cases I think that kind of talks about the path queries or the path problems because it is a little bit annoying a lot of the entry resources on code kill they'll talk about writing um like these predicates they'll talk about you know extending some things but they won't necessarily talk about how to actually get a path um so i, I thought that was kind of worthwhile that they pointed out it's just another use case of code kill because i I've had a little bit of an issue trying to learn CodeQL based on just looking at other queries because a lot of the resources they have don't cover it very well. Even one of their workshops, um, I don't remember which workshop it was that I went through, but even in their workshop, it's like, and you can also get the full path, and it's like you change this to this type of query, but I'll leave the rest of that as an exercise to the user. It's like, that's the thing I actually wanted to know about, and it was just kind of left off. 
Um, that said, like the query here did pull up a lot of false positives. Or, or I won't necessarily say they're false positives. The way you can use CodeQL is to find areas that look suspicious. So what their query actually does, I pulled up here, it defines like that uh, big number context start and big number context and function. And it looks for any function entry point where effectively the function will call end, but it won't, necess or won't necessarily call start or it doesn't call start. It just looks for any function like that. And then you can look through all of them. And I mean, that's a good use for CodeQL. It's able to find those sorts of functions and then you can kind of figure it out and you can figure out um, the path based on that or some of the path based from what CodeQL gives you. Yeah, I want to shout out gang GitHub since they acquired uh, SAML has been using and has been doing more with CodeKill, making it a little bit more open and accessible for people. Um, and I'm I'm fairly excited about the use case for CodeKill. It's definitely got some rough edges that I haven't liked, but I do like pointing it out. I think it's going to be a fairly powerful tool as this continues to receive some adoption. Yeah, I mean, we've seen quite a few cool things that have been uh, using CodeQL and, and it seems to be showing like how much promise uh, CodeQL has. Um, it just, like you said, it, it does need that addressing on the front of breaking into it. It's it's really difficult because um, I, I haven't done nearly as much looking into it as you have, but I did some preliminary looking into CodeQL and it, it, it did seem difficult to get started. So um, yeah, I mean, if anybody, anybody out there like in the comments or whatever wants to drop some resources about CodeQL, uh, that might be a cool thing that we could kind of collate and put together like uh, a listing of resources for it because uh, yeah, CodeQL is, is kind of demonstrating how powerful it can be um, over the last little while and, and GitHub's really pushing it forward. So uh, we can move into our research section of the episode. Uh, there's been quite a bit of buzz around uh, control flow integrity or CFI uh, as of late. Uh, as recently as two episodes ago, we were talking about ShadowStack and how that's making its way into Linux. Uh, though only as a software implementation, not a hardware one. Um, this paper is another form of CFI uh, called Authenticated Call Stacks, or ACS, um, which is, uses existing hardware um, mitigations to implement something similar to ShadowStack. Um, and that existing hardware mitigation is pointer authentication, or PAC. And so they call it PACStack. Um, and, and basically how this works is they use pointer authentication to cryptographically bind return addresses to their previous return addresses in the call stack. And it basically forms a chain of hash values. Um, each return address on the stack depends on the hash of the return address that came before it. Um, and that helps to ensure that the key remains unique and doesn't get reused, since each control flow path, uh, in theory, should have its own key, basically. Um, and the current token, or MAC key, is stored in an exclusive register, which they call the chain register, uh, which may seem like a major sacrifice uh, from a performance standpoint of losing a register to work with. Um, but they note that ShadowStack also requires a register for its exclusive use. So in comparison to ShadowStack, it's not really losing anything there. Um, and then that register is checked against when a function goes to return uh, to ensure the pointer is authenticated data. Um, now, because of the nature of PAC and how the code is embedded in the pointer, there is a bit of a weakness in the way that there's only 16 bits of entropy to work with there, uh, which does make this type of mitigation somewhat weak to collision. Um, they, they do try to prevent that. They basically do that with masking, uh, with a pure NG value derived from the previous authenticated return address. Um, and then they clear that mask immediately after use. 
Um, so in that way, they try to make it harder to identify a collision and identify opportunities for reuse. Um, but it is still there because when you're limited to that many bits, um, it's just not enough bits to work with, really, when you're talking about crypto stuff. Um, overall, though, I, I think it is a cool um, mitigation in the way that it's making something like Shadowstack uh, realistic without relying entirely on software. It's using an existing hardware mitigation um, because one thing with Shadowstack that is an issue, and we kind of touched on this when we talked about the Linux security post on episode 64, is um, it, it's not really hardware protected because the Shadowstack it can be written to by an attacker. Um, there's nothing in the hardware that says you cannot write to the Shadowstack. Um, so that's kind of an issue there, but here where they're using a hardware backed mitigation, um, it's stronger, right? Because it's using that register. You're not going to be able to write into that register if you're in user space, um, which is also worth noting. They don't consider attackers who can read or modify uh, kernel managed registers, such as the pointer authentication codes. So as far as I understand it, this is mostly for user space. Um, and obviously, it doesn't consider data-oriented programming attacks because that's not really going to be able to be tackled with CFI. Um, but yeah, that said, like outside of those factors, I think this does look pretty promising. Uh, the performance overhead was really small at about 3%, um, though there is a bit of a caveat there. They had to estimate the overhead, and they benchmarked on a fixed virtual platform uh, because the only SOCs that support uh, pointer authentication at the moment are Apple, which, as we all know, are extremely favorable to third-party code um, and sarcasm. But yeah, I mean, it's cool that it doesn't re uh, require any new hardware-based security mechanisms. It uses what's kind of already been done by ARM, um, and the security is comparable to Shadowstack. Yeah, so uh, my... I don't necessarily want to say it's my issue with this, but they talk about this in terms of comparing it. They kind of set themselves up as a comparison with the software shadow stack and you know they incur the high overhead because of the you know security versus efficiency trade-off but what they end up doing here is they talk about how you know doing this without needing the hardware assistance and then they go ahead and dedicate like a register is there like they use x28 as their chain register which is effectively dedicating hardware to having the shadow stack it's just they, you know, use pack on this, or sorry, use uh, pointer authentication. Yeah, I guess that would be pack. Um, they use that on the side anyhow. I don't know. It just, it feels a little bit unfair. Like, as a mitigation, it does seem like it would be reasonably effective and all of that. But I just don't really like the way they frame it, I guess, which is probably nitpicky on my part. It doesn't really matter how they frame it. But still, they talk about, you know, without requiring the dedicated hardware, and then they go ahead and like, yeah, we're going to dedicate this register to it, which is kind of dedicating some hardware to it. I mean, this is effectively, um, and they implement this through LLVM, uh, through some LLVM passes to instrument the code, do this. So they instrument it just like any other software one. Uh, they just enforce it using pack, which I, I think it's fair. I like, I don't want to detract from the actual efficacy of or its potential efficacy with pack stack i don't want to detract from that i just don't think it's like fair to try and compare it with software-based shadow stack because this is not software-based or it is it's a software-based implementation 
but it still kind of requires giving up the register for it and things like that. That's fair. Um, when you look at it just from the point of view of what the mitigation is doing, I think it's really cool. But the framing of it, I can, I can kind of see where you're coming uh, from there. Um, toward the end of the paper, they do call it a few attacks which could get around this mitigation. Uh, one thing they mention is the Project Zero attack against PAC, which uh, reused code as gadgets to generate uh, pointer authentication codes for arbitrary pointers. Um, it also noted that it wouldn't protect against SIG return oriented programming or using the signal frame to modify the execution state. Uh, since they could tamper with the EL0 registers when they're saved on a on a context switch or something like that. Um, but those are kind of out of scope because the, the first way around it is an issue with PAC itself. So I don't really think that's um, something that's fair to lie at the doorstep of PAC stack. Um, and the second, there are mitigations being proposed for, and they, and they link to some of the papers that are covering that. Yeah, I mean, um, so, and I will say, this does seem like a reasonable stopgap solution because it Pack's kind of weird in that it kind of does forward edge CFI. It kind of protects against some backward edge CFR. Yeah, some backward edge CFI stuff. But this is kind of making it a lot stronger on the backward edge. Um, and that's kind of what I was saying before. Like, I don't want to detract from the actual mitigation itself because it is a good mitigation, I think. I just had like that nitpicky issue. But on a whole, it's definitely interesting. And. I mean, the backwards, I think the backwards CFI is going to be, I think, the big hurdle for a lot of people when you can no longer do the ROP. That's going to be tough, yeah. Um, um, whereas forward edge, it's like, I think, I think it's, you know, a little bit less of a conceptual issue for people to kind of deal with and understand how you go about it. Um, I do want to take one question out chat. Uh, Bleak asks, do you feel like these mitigations will make developers more lazy and we'll see more bugs as backsplash? Perhaps. It's a good question. That said, I think we should... This comes down to the question over, should we expect the uh, security to... Or, sorry, should we expect developers to implement all the security themselves? And I think think we should be moving more towards centralized security where the developers can still write the bad code and it can't be exploited now ideally the developers should not be writing the bad code in the first place but i think it's a lot better if we're able to deal with that in a very centralized way so you take the example of cross-site scripting when we're having like the frameworks like angular or react or whatever which generally deal with cross-site scripting i mean you've got like the mutation excess now which seems to be somewhat effective um, even when you're uh, implementing some of the usual defenses, but you've got those mitigation, you've got that kind of centralized mitigation in place. So even if there is potential cross-site scripting, it's blocked by the centralized mitigation. So even if there are the bugs, it doesn't really matter because you can't exploit them. So I guess for me, it, it may lead to more bugs as developers no longer need to worry about certain things. I think it will lead to greater security, though, regardless. Yeah, so I, I don't think we'll see more bugs like being introduced, just uh, like developers slacking off. I do think we might see a change in structure to how bugs are perceived um, when it comes to a security standpoint. Like, I think there might not be as much of a focus on trying to rush um, security fixes, but I don't know. I mean, that's... 
it's hard to say really um it's hard to speculate on that um there was another thing i wanted to pull out of chat as well uh, which was did you really read all 18 pages how long it took uh, the reason i wanted to point that out is there is like a way you can read white papers and skip um like it, it does seem like a lot of pages 18 pages but you got to factor in that some of those are going to be the reference pages um often you can just uh, briefly glance at the abstract and you can skip the introduction if you're familiar with the topic. Um, there are certain sections that you can just kind of skip through and and uh, like glance at and then get to the, I guess, the meat and potatoes of the paper. So, yeah, I mean, even though it's 18 pages, you don't have to read all 18 pages to get a, uh, a solid grasp on what the paper is about. Yeah, um, no, the design and implementation sections in particular are probably uh, where a lot of what you'd want to read are. Yeah, or at least where we'd want to comment on things. Yeah, I'll mention um, a lot of papers end up having, having sections that deal with all the background knowledge you need. So that's really useful when you don't know the topic. And like this paper should kind of be standalone, like academic papers generally. You should be able to take this paper and understand it based on its, like everything inside of it. But if you already understand that there is a lot of content that you can just kind of jump over if you're already aware of like the background, like ROP on ARM or what ARM pointer authentication is there, you don't need to read that page. What's coarse grain forward edge control flow integrity. Again, already familiar. We don't really need the extra information on that. And then it gets into that. Um, in terms of how long it takes, at least for me, usual episode, this episode's actually kind of short. Um, I put in about two hours, maybe two and a half to three, if you include the time I spend actually finding the papers and stuff to go through. The papers do definitely take longer to yeah. um, get notes on and also cover. Um, but they're also like the the most interesting topics to me, I think. So it, it kind of balances out. Yeah, the um, papers the papers take longer. Um, that's why I've tried to keep it to just one or two per episode now we used to cover quite a few when it came to the early episodes we might have covered like three or four at a time i've tried to stop that because they do take quite a while i mean the paper whereas a normal exploit you might be done that in like 10 15 minutes a paper might take a half hour 45 minutes to actually get through in terms of pointer authentication on x86 64 i don't believe we're going to see pointer auth on x86 uh, simply because I believe the spec basically prevents prevents you from using those uh, kind of unused bits in the pointers for any sort of extra information. Um, I believe that's actually something that's spec'd out. So until that changes, you won't see any sort of pointer auth. You might. We're obviously seeing like CFI coming in with Intel CT. AMD has their own system for it. We're seeing some of that, but it's not pointer authentication itself. And in fairness, I do think some of those may be stronger than pointer authentication. Pointer, I was kind of mentioning this earlier, where pointer authentication is kind of... It's kind of weird in that it's not a perfect... Like, it doesn't really prevent anything completely, but it makes everything more difficult. Whereas, like, Shadow Stack does nothing for forward edge, but it does do a little bit for the backward edge stuff. Um, and same with the... Uh, Obviously, forward edge from CET has a bit more of an effect there. So, yeah, I don't think we're going to see it on 
x86 64 anytime too soon until spec changes somebody can correct me if that isn't spec i haven't actually verified that i just heard that from somebody else and thank you chad be new for the raid with 32 people yeah um you kind of mentioned it there but i think intel cet um is the the next thing to kind of look out for in x86 um, I don't know what AMD's equivalent would be called, or if they have... Uh, they do an have an equivalent yeah. that's on Ryzen 5th Gen, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, I don't, I don't recall called, the name right now. I could actually... I could probably find that, but... Yeah, all good. Um, but yeah, there is stuff coming for x64. It's just that, uh, yeah, pack is exclusive to ARM, basically, to answer the base question. Um, but yeah... I, I will quickly also uh, give my thanks to you for the for the raid chat being new. Um, but yeah, like this paper in itself, I, I think it's cool, and it'll be interesting to see uh, where it goes. Our final topic uh, covers JSON and uh, parsing discrepancies, uh, primarily when it comes to um, the specification and, and deviating from that specification, um, and how those can lead to vulnerabilities. So they classify these types of discrepancies into five types of risk. Uh, and go into in-depth detail of each and, and what type of desyncs they can cause. Um, the first one they talk about, and it's probably the most common, and some of the other attacks refer back to it, is the inconsistent duplicate key precedence. Um, so say, for example, if you had two of the same key uh, with different values, you can have a desync where one service would take the first value and the other service takes the second, uh, and you have that desync there, um, which could lead to uh, logic issues. Uh, the next is key collision uh, through like character truncation and comments. Um, it goes into how some parsers can truncate characters when they appear in strings, such as legal Unicode, um, which can lead to the same type of desync with duplicate keys, uh, or even more serious issues if one parser strips out the Unicode and the other one doesn't. Uh, the example they give for that is like if you have roles uh, that can be created in a panel by an admin and there's a, su a super admin role, um, they could create a super admin role or super user plus Unicode, uh, where internally it gets stored with the Unicode, but inside of like permission checks, for example, um, the, that Unicode gets stripped out and you have a like a permission bypass type situation. Um, the third type of attack is the uh, JSON deserialization or serialization quirks. Um, the precedence levels when dealing with duplicate keys when serializing and deserializing can differ, uh, yeah, which I can lead to values be... being smuggled. I found this to be really interesting. Like the fact that that even kind of exists as a problem. Um, yeah, I'm trying to find where it is. Yeah, because you've got this case where you have the object with the same key in there twice. So test as equal to one and test equal to two. And in Java's JSON iterator, if you end up calling the object and just get that key, you're going to get the value as one. But when you call the JSON object and have it two string, so when it serializes it, it uses the value two. So that that is a really interesting place for a bug to exist and i could like that's such a subtle thing that you can definitely overlook this yeah oh. so that oh. could lead to the values being smuggled across the serialization layers um sorry was there something else you wanted to say on that before we move to the other ones or well i was just going to make the general comment that a lot of these like they don't really this one kind of exists in isolation like you could have a program that just uses one uh json parser and you can have this bug uh, especially as they're using this example of java's json iterator 
because uh, you can imagine the case where it's like, okay, we're going to validate these inputs before we save it locally. So say you send in the JSON, it validates it. It's like object test. Okay, is this value within this range? And then it saves it out. And then it trusts it from that point. Um, so, but most of these issues, you kind of have to deal with the interoperability between different JSON parsers, which is a bit of a unique case to have when you have JSON being passed around, but it's not that unheard of, especially as we see more and more microservices being used. There's more cases where one API that you hit might communicate off with other APIs that you don't necessarily see using JSON and being able to take advantage of some of these issues because of that. So I just want to kind of point that out is one of the attack scenarios for this are basically microservices and the services you can't see. Yeah, that's that's good uh, clarification. Uh, so the, the fourth attack class is uh, float and integer representation. Uh, not all parsers are consistent when decoding very large numbers. Uh, some will default to zero, while others will try to forcefully decode that integer. Um, and there's also some ed ca edge cases when it comes to like infinity and not a number, which aren't officially supported by the RFC, but the parsers have some workaround support for. Um, and finally, they talk about uh, permissive parsing and other miscellaneous issues, such as the possibility of DOS. Um, so things like allowing uh, the trailing garbage uh, to be used to bypass same origin policy by using trailing equal signs to trick the content type. Um, and then DOS attacks due to like malformed JSON causing memory corruption in libraries. Uh, which is probably the the more obvious um, types of attacks. Um, toward the end, they they have a listing of the current behaviors that were observed for various parsers, which I thought was cool, um, like a quick reference table. Um, for JSON parser, they also have a section on how to mitigate against these types of issues, um, and they, they target that to various parties. Uh, for JSON parser maintainers, they recommend not allowing duplicate keys, uh, not performing character truncation on invalid Unicode, and instead replacing it. Um, staying true to the specification by default, or at least providing a strict mode, and producing errors when handling edge case integers and floats instead of trying to forcefully represent it. Uh, for developers, they recommend uh, checking for behavior gaps and parsers, and for security people to basically try the things that were mentioned in this article to introduce these, these kinds of quirks and, and observe the behavior. Um, I, I like that section where they had the, the different parties and how they could uh, kind of try to tackle these issues, and yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of cool background information and stuff in this post. It's a good research post. Um, it's it's one of those posts where it's not really a white paper, but it, it offers like a lot of the same insights that a white paper would um, yeah, this in, a, in a clear and concise way. Definitely a useful resource there. I mean, I like Bishop Fox for some of the research that they put out. It, odds are like, well, they're not going to report on the vulnerabilities. They are a lot of the vulnerabilities they've seen this. Odds are, if it's getting written up like this, they found this in multiple places. Um, and yeah, I, could, they... I could absolutely see this. Um, it's a really good overview of the issue because it is something that maybe you're not aware of all the ways you could attack like a JSON parser. Um, so yeah, I found this just to be a really good overview too. Um, especially the end part where they give you the summary on how everything breaks down. Yeah, I learned a few things from this post. I didn't realize there were so many ways uh, or so many discrepancies that uh, various JSON parsers could have. Uh, it was a little bit eye-opening for me. Yeah, the number ones, that reminds me a lot of some stuff we used to do with PHP, especially using the scientific notation. Mm, yeah. Or the E numbers, I guess. Um, using scientific notation that way in PHP used to be a fairly big issue with numbers. 
um, depending on how they translated it into like an integer or whatever, um, it would get parsed in different ways. So you're seeing kind of the same thing here with JSON. Yeah. Um, but yeah, overall, a, a useful research post that uh, people should check out, especially if they're using uh, JSON and, and multiple services uh, in the way that Z talked about. Uh, with that said, we can move into our shout outs. So uh, Z, I know you had a, a port swigger shout out, so I'll let you uh, kick off with that. Yeah, and unfortunately, it looks like our link doesn't work here, but Portswigger put out a, um, a top 10 web hacking techniques. I'm just trying to see if I can find the proper link for you guys. Um, I do have a link. Uh, I opened it up on the browser. I, I don't think it's going through for you, though, so I'll just send it to you uh, through mobile. Um, yeah, but so yeah. they have top 10 web hacking techniques. I've got it up here now. Thank you. Um some of these we've actually covered on the podcast when they first came out. Some of these came out during the summer. It's just worth kind of going over some of these if you're not aware of them. Actually, one of them I mentioned the TLS talk uh, during Black Hat. That's actually one of the research or hacking techniques that they call out for this year. And these are voted on by people a couple weeks ago. They put out um, a poll for you to vote on for what your favorites are. So it is a bit of a popularity contest, too. Uh, but there are some interesting things here uh, that are definitely worth taking a look at. The H2C smuggling would be worthwhile. Obviously, I've already mentioned when TLS hacks you. Netslip slipstreaming we talked about on podcasts, and now there's Netslip streaming 2.0, which is definitely worth looking at because I think that's a lot more useful and effective. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they cover quite a few there. Uh, I don't remember if we covered the image magic one here shell injection via pdf password there's a I good write-up for it i think we might have dropped it just because my opinion you don't see a lot of web applications that like you provide like the pdf password and it's using it with image magic it was a very very specific scenario nonetheless it was a good write-up it did make this list uh pretty much all of these are worth at least checking out and even the ones that didn't quite make it yeah, uh, there's there's a few topics in there that we've covered, and uh, it's it's uh, it's a nice summary of those types of uh, attacks. And but like you said, it is a bit of a popularity contest too. There was like a nomination and uh, a final choosing. Um, my shout out is around uh, Neocova and the open security training stuff. So we we talked about it not too long ago. I don't remember the exact episode, but open security training is basically uh, doing a reboot OST 2.0 uh, Neocova. He retired from Apple to focus on it, and uh, he's he started lining up beta testers for the uh, x86-64 assembly class relaunch. Um, so the, he's looking for people from three different categories, uh, people who are brand new to x86-64 assembly and want to learn it. Um, another category is people who took OST1, um, the 32-bit class. And the third category is uh, learned uh, x64 assembly elsewhere and want to provide an expert eye to watch out for any factual mistakes. So just trying to cover all the bases. Um, anybody who's interested in open security training and would want to be part of that beta, um, he has instructions in that tweet chain of of uh, how to contact him. I think he says there's 20 spots open for each category, so 60 spots total. Um, he has an email address that uh, you can email for if you're interested in that. But yeah, um, OST is just one of those really nice resources that both Z and I have recommended in the past, personally, and on Day Zero blog posts as well. So um, I think OST2 will be really cool when it lands, and uh, yeah, it, it, I'm we really want to see it succeed. 
yeah, I want to see it succeed. I want to see good content coming out there. I do find it a little bit interesting that the second category, specifically those who took OST one, the 32 bit class, because there is a 64 bit class. Um, which I could have kind of imagined, you know, those that took the original 64 bit to compare with the second one rather than wanting 32 bit. So I find that one slightly interesting as a category, but either way, I mean, open security training, even now with the original stuff, some of it's kind of old, really solid resources regardless. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that concludes the episode, though. That's all of our topics. Uh, thank you to everyone who tuned in. You can catch the VODs on Twitch or on YouTube, as well as other platforms, which you can find on our Anchor. Uh, once again, apologies for the, the title not being updated um, and, and tricking some people into thinking it was a PS4 stream. It was just an honest mistake. Um, yeah, I kind of, I seem to, I did that last week too. I seem to be doing that a lot. That's my bad. It's easy to skip over um, where we're, we're doing some more streams. So, yeah. Um, with that out of the way, though, follow us on Twitter. Uh, check out our Discord for notifications as well for when we do go live. Uh, we are going to be doing a PS4 stream this week. Obviously not today. We didn't do it uh, in this stream. But uh, Thursday is is when we're, we're planning for the next episode of that. Also, on a quick note on that, uh, I don't need more people sending me the uh, the flow tweet with uh, the, the hint. I've had like eight people send it to me today, I think, by now. So I, I've got the message. Don't worry. I've seen it. Um, but yeah, uh, with that said, we'll be back in next week at the usual time for the podcast, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific on Monday. Until then, take care. And as I said in chat, we will be raiding here. I just like to kind of give us a clean outro for the actual podcast. Uh, but we will be raiding by coding and coffee. I am not actually sure what he is doing right now. So I guess we'll find out together. All right, I, uh...